0: Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Salatu wassalamu ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wal-munsalim Sayyidina wa nabiyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa antabihahum bi ihsanin ala yomiddeen Amma ba'du an ibn Abbasin radhiallahu anhu Qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam La yahillu damum ri'in muslimin yashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa anni rasulullah illa bi-ihda thalath a al-zani وَالنَّفْسُ بِالنَّفْسُ وَالتَّارِكُ لِدِينِهِ أَلْمُفَارِقُ لِلْجَمَاعَةِ رَوَاهُ البخاري وَمُسْلِمِ Alhamdulillah, we're continuing with the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi. And as we mentioned previously, take this one, they're going to bring... As we mentioned previously, every one of these 40 hadith is a fundamental principle in the deen. So... Everything that's being mentioned and all of the hadith that are narrated by Imam Nawawi in this book refers to a very specific principle in the religion. In other words, if you were to take any given hadith in this book, it would be a rule to live by. It would be an usul. It would be a fundamental principle of the religion. It would be something essential that the religion is based on. The religion is based upon. So many of the hadith, you'll see that they, it, 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 it indicates to, or it relates to something that is fundamental in the religion. And as a Muslim, how do we interact with these hadith? And this is something that I, I, am, I am emphasizing a lot. Whether it's in the tafsir sessions, Brother Mahmoud, all the other brothers that come to the tafsir, what am I constantly saying? What is your relationship with the Qur'an? Your tadabbur of the Qur'an. I've been speaking about this in in Salatul Jummah for the past few weeks. What have you found from the Qur'an? How has the Qur'an made you a better person? How has the Qur'an guided you? What have you gained from this book? What have you gained from this religion? This is very important for us that we have to interact practically with the Qur'an and the sunnah. And when we are talking about now the hadith, Every single hadith in this compilation is something that is a practical rule of life. It's a practical rule of life. Islam and your deen is a way of life. It's not some, you know, ism. You know, what's the difference between Islam and all the other isms? Right? Buddhism or communism or other isms. It's a way of thinking. It's a thought. But deen is a way of life. It's a way of practice. And we have to start looking at the Quran and Sunnah from this perspective. You understand? We have to change the way we look at things. When we're educating ourselves, when we're reading books like the Arba'een of Imam al-Nawawi. Every hadith that you read, ask yourself this question. How is this relevant to me? How can I apply this to my life practically? I'm telling you, if you, if you cannot do that, I don't, it's like not worth it. Every aspect, and I believe every ayah of the Quran, every hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, they they were sent for the guidance of humanity. They were sent to rectify humanity. They were sent to make our lives better lives. And many of the mashayikh. I mean, I was reading one I was reading, when, when, um, I was reading uh, uh, one commentary of a hadith book. It says actually the objective of the why the prophets ﷺ were sent is that this world in and of itself. The world that we live in here, Allah Ta'ala has revealed the religion for the masalih, masalih umurid umur That whatever in the religion Allah Ta'ala has revealed is to rectify our worldly affairs. A lot of people think that religion has to do with something, right? In the grave and in the afterlife. No, that is only one part of it. But a major aspect of the deen, and inshallah, this is what we're going to be learning about today. I'm going to try to explain this hadith in a different way so that you understand. How does this apply? How do we understand this? How do we value this? You understand? So, the practical implementation of this. Every hadith, like I said, is something which has a practical implementation in my life. And when we read hadith and when we read an ayah of Quran, this is how we should approach it. This is how we should read it, that how is this applicable? How can I implement this in my life? So, going to hadith number 14, we've reached hadith number 14. And I'm going to first translate it. After translating it, well, actually, you know what? I'm not going to translate it first because I know your brains is going to cut off from everything. You're going to try to uh, understand the hadith. Right, according to your own, mashallah, brilliant uh, intellectual capacities. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to build the framework of the hadith first. Then when you hear the hadith, you'll be able to apply the hadith. Okay, so let's learn this very important principle here today. These are what we call the maqasid al-shari'ah. al sharia the objectives those of you who uh, are not in a position to see this sit in a position so you'll be able to see this the objectives of shari'a okay why this is important for you? because as a Muslim, you believe in shari'a as a Muslim, we believe in divine law we believe in sacred law, we believe in divine law We are hearing this in the news. We are hearing this in the media. We are hearing this everywhere. People are making fun of religion. People are criticizing the deen. People are criticizing, right, the divine law or the Quranic law. So we have to first understand now, what is the sharia? I like to define the sharia as what we call divine law. You have man-made laws. Understand? And then you have divine laws. Man-made laws, they are prone to man's mistakes and they are prone to man's error because they're created by man. But divine laws and sharia, it is not created. This is so profound for us to understand. These laws are not created by man. These laws are given and they are revealed. Allah Azza wa Jalla says in the Quran shara'a 'alaikum min ad-din shara'a Allahu lakum min ad dini ma wasa bi Nuhan and in and all the Allah Ta'ala has made given sharia to you O Muhammad and to Nuh and to uh, Ibrahim and Musa and Isa right? So these and in another verse of the Qur'an, Allah Ta'ala says that for each one of them, جَعْلَ لَهُمْ Allah gave to each prophet and to each ummah, shiratan wa minhaja, Gave them a particular law to go by and a particular methodology. So Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala now for the final messenger, so for the Qur'an, there is a final divine law that Allah Ta'ala revealed that will be applicable till the day of judgment. The Quran is the framework. Now when we have the fiqh, this is that various applications of that particular framework. Like you have the constitution, right? But then you have lawyers and you have courts and you have judges that they have different application. How they apply now? What is the overview? What is the main principles which is now outlined in the constitution and in the amendments? You're following me? So now, why, what is the objectives? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal these divine laws? So, I'm going to write each one down so that we have an understanding. Okay? Here's some notes here that I'm going to... Okay, the first one, why did Allah Ta'ala give us these divine laws? Why did Allah Ta'ala reveal the laws? Are these laws for the next life so that we don't care about it? Right? Because many governments who call themselves Muslim countries or Muslim governments, they don't care about the Sharia law. They don't care about the divine law because they think it's just like some mumbo-jumbo stuff that has to do with the next life. It has nothing to do with this life. So they keep it secular. Religion is something ideological. Religion is something that you keep in the private sector. It's not something that's meant to be applied for a community or for a society. Do you understand what I'm saying? And this is why many of these whatever countries and nation states that have, they're completely, this is where the struggle is now, right? This is where all the fighting is. This is where all the struggle is. This is where all the problems lie. And it's a very serious issue in this fact because people are like, well, you know, is this something really important? I just want to be a good person. Yeah, you want to be a good person, but what if there's alcohol that's rampant in all of society? What if there's adultery that's rampant in all of society? You could be the most nicest guy in the world, but there has to be an authority that's establishing laws and rules regarding these matters. Just the... Just If anybody knows about the prohibition era in the United States, anybody study any U.S. history? So in the 1920s, there was a prohibition. What happened? It was a tumultuous, very, very kind of ajib time that these people had gotten to such a level of morality in the 20s, things were much different in America. They were at such a level of morality, they said, we don't want alcohol in our country. It is going to be banned by the law. So now, what happened? What was the knee-jerk reaction? You know, these mobsters and, you know, many of them came out in the 1920s that came out in the 1920s with the Tommy guns and all that. All of that was because of the alcohol trade. You understand? There was a knee-jerk reaction that came about from that. But the point is, is that it, it created a lot of change in the society when the government cracked down on it right there was a lot of change in society when the government put it in when the government had placed restrictions upon gambling when the government had placed restrictions upon prostitution when the government places restrictions upon these things it will not become common in society and when the government says it's okay prostitution is okay what happens it becomes part of the society it starts becoming part of the community Prostitution becomes part of the community. Many people don't know about this this masjid, which used to be a church. What that, as the legend goes, right? As the legend goes, is that you know there is the the bay over here where there were sailors, and this was a little town where there was brothel close by. And the sailors used to come here, and they would come to these brothels over here, which was on this specific, you know, street, and they would have a good time, and then they would go back to their work and to their jobs. So the community here, which were very devout Christians in the 1930s, they said, we don't want this for our community. We don't want this type of filth here in our community. What did they do? They built this church. Was it in the 1800s? It was in the 1800s. Yeah, 1800s, 1880s. It was in the 1880s. They said you know the, the priest of, the, of this place used to come to the church on his horse. My point is, is, the interesting thing, is regardless of what their religion was, they had this serious sense of morality. They did not want this in their society. They did not want this in their community. But who are the people that can, who enforces that? I've seen myself as an imam. People come to me, a, a husband is doing zulm on the wife. And the wife comes to me that my husband is doing oppression to me. And I'm an imam. What am I going to do? Beat him up? All I can do is give him nasiha. That's all I can do. I have no other authority beyond that. The only thing I can do, if it's really bad, I call a law enforcement to take care of the situation. But my point is, is that when you don't have divine law, when you don't have a sharia, when you don't have a system, that's implementing this for the wider benefit of the society. What happens? The whole society becomes destroyed or the society becomes completely like, you know, you have a small group of people that are doing things for their own. Who is going to have the enforcement or the ability to stop those who are going to bring harm upon society? And this is why the Sharia is based upon these five things. Number one is Hifzun Nafs. Okay, Hivzul Nafs. The second one is Hivzul Mal. The third one is Hivzul Nasab. The fourth is Hivzul ird And the fifth one is Hiddu din last but not least. These five things is the reason and the objectives. The reason and the objectives. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the laws that he sent in the Quran, the various different types of laws that he sent, and inshallah in the hadith that we're going to be doing, it's going to be discussing this very point. That's why I wanted to... I wanted to build the framework the framework of what is the introduction to this hadith otherwise if you don't know this you're not going to understand the hadith and your mind is going to go take you in another direction hifdhun nafs it means preservation of life hifdhul hayat hifdhun nafs yani hifdhul hayat that sharia has been the, many of the laws that are in the sharia have been imposed and have been sanctioned, because of what? To preserve human life. Why? Because if there is no human life, then there is no person to practice the deen. If there's no human being, if the human being is gone, then there's no place where the deen is going to be implemented, when there's no human being. You understand? For example, I, I, I tell you, do the oil change on the car. If there's no car, there's no oil change on the car. First comes the car, then comes the oil change. The human has to exist. If the human beings are being killed, left, right, and center, where is the implementation of deen? So this is first and foremost above all else. Secondly, Hifzul Mal. And look, this, the, the, the scholars have even debated the... How do you say? The... the uh, you know, the, the, how do you say that, the, what's first and second? The sequence. Some scholars have put deen all the way in the top, right? But I, I'm, I'm explaining why certain scholars have put life before the deen is because in certain situations, if a person puts a gun to your head and says, renounce your religion, I'm going to kill you, you are allowed, according to the Quran, for the preservation of your life to say, okay, I don't believe in because if there's no human, there's no deen. The whole reason that the deen has been revealed for the human, if you negate the human being, where is the deen going to be practiced? So whatever, I mean, we're talking about divine laws. Why did Allah send the laws? And what have the law been sent to do? What has the law been sent to preserve? What is the objective of this law? So for us to understand when people say, Oh no, Sharia law. You know, you have a guy with like a machete and he's chopping people's hands off. Whereas in reality, there is another whole aspect to it where you have this. This is what the Sharia has been sent in order to preserve. And now we're going to, inshallah, discuss those particular laws, which one applies to which. So, Hivzul Nafs. Hivzul Mal. If there's no wealth, if there's no economy, right now we got a lot of deen in Afghanistan. Supposedly, no mal. People are dying. People cannot practice deen because there's no mal. Because there's no mal, the society is falling apart. Hivzul mal, therefore, Hivz and protection of people's wealth is one of the objectives of this divine law. Many of the laws that have been revealed in Islam is to protect people's wealth. So that what? So that there is no. How do you say that, that, that whatever, you know, gives subsistence to human life? Because one is human beings, but how does that human being survive? The human being is, is subsists through sustenance. Human being survives through sustenance. If there's no sustenance, the human being cannot live. Therefore, Sharia law or divine law has to have something in it in order to preserve wealth as well. You understand? Okay, so that's understood. Number three, hivzun nasab. Hivdun nasab. Hivdun nasab means preservation of lineage. Preservation of lineage. If you don't know what is nasal, like then there's no differentiation between human beings and animals. A dog goes and sleeps with a female dog, and then another dog is more, another dog comes, and the, the next dog, and whose son is that, and whose child is that? Nobody knows. Where did I come from? Where is my nasab? Where is my lineage? Who is my father? Who is my clan? Where did I come from? And this also creates a huge chaos in society where people don't know where is my, where is my, this is, this is the honor of a human being. This is what separates human beings from creatures and animals, which don't have lineage, and the most, the most that's why they have amongst animals what you call pedigree. You have horses where they know the lineage of that horse all the way back to the first horse. You have lineage of dogs that you know that, that, that the father of that dog going all the way back to the first dog, what happens? That dog, even in the performance, that horse in the horse race they say this is a pedigree if anybody knows what that means it's an animal with a lineage that animal performs better that animal is sound that animal is balanced that animal is at its peak top condition it's immaculate why is that? it's because the nasab is preserved when you have a society where the nasab is not preserved what do you have? you have a society of like wild animals chaos and it's an interesting thing. A large percentage of people that are in prisons, a large percentage of inmates that are incarcerated, you'll find 90% of them don't know their nasab. 90% of them, they are people, 80 to 90%, they don't know what is my lineage, where did I come from, who is my father. It was a one night stand. I don't know where my father was. My father was not in my life. I was raised by a single mother in not saying that, you know, single mothers, their children will not come out uh, uh, good. I was the child of a single... But we're talking about, right, uh, lineage, that there was no consummation of the marriage. There was no honoring. There was no, right, uh, concern about sanctity of this union, that there should be a you know, uh, honor of this human being raised in a way with dignity and with tarbiyah. Which then what does what? When you're making hifz of nasab, you're actually preserving the dignity of society. Otherwise, you just have a, a free-for-all chaos in society. And that also creates a lot of problems. Then you have hifz al-ird, preservation of honor. People should not be discriminated. People should not be put down because of their skin color. People should not be put down because of where, who their father was, what clan they are from, what tribe they are from, right? A person should not be, subhanAllah, if, and this is subhanAllah, and each one, inshallah, we'll go through each one of them, that if a person in the books of fiqh it comes, if a person says to someone else in public, Ya khabith, O khabith, O foul person, or you call a person, please forgive me for using this language, oh bastard, ya harami, ya ibn al-haram, you use this word, yani you can take that person to a court of law, and that person will be taken to task by the qadi. Because what the honor of a person is to be preserved by the sharia. Allah Ta'ala says we have nobilified human beings Nobody has a right Subhanallah La, uh, la fadilata Like the Prophet says That the, the Arab is not uh, more virtuous than the Ajam And the Ajam is not virtuous than the Arab And the white man is not virtuous over the black man And the black man is not superior over the white man This is the prophetic teaching So Sharia has come also to preserve the honor of human beings And then lastly Preserving of the deen The deen is something that has to be preserved now we'll go like just as an example, Hibzun Nafs, why this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded, right? an nafs bin nafs. That if someone kills someone else by capital punishment, they have forfeit their right, they've forfeited their right of living. You have taken the life of someone else. And if it's proven you know beyond a reasonable doubt that that person is the killer his life must be taken why because wa fil qisas ya allah ta'ala says and in this qisas there is life in this qisas in this capital punishment there is life why is there life because when that one life is taken a thousand other people are going to take heed a thousand other people who think about killing others when he sees what is the result of killing this is what i'm going to this is what's going to happen to me when one person who is a molester A child molester When one person is a rapist And a serial killer And that person is taken to task Right Thousand other Hundreds of thousands of other lives Are preserved by that This is the Sharia law Not, this fa- not these other fake laws that exist Right That thousands of rapists and murderers And all everybody is doing whatever they want to do And there is no, nobody that can do anything about it Right So this is Allah Azza wa Jal's hukum the divine hukum wa fil hayat. In this, this capital punishment, what is it? There is life. Look at the way Allah Ta'ala is explaining this, subhanallah. This is divine, it's not human. What? You're killing somebody and there's life in that? Yes. Because you're killing one, but you're saving 100,000 other lives because the people take heed. You understand? Hivzul mal. The male and the female thief cut their hand. Allah Azza wa says this. This is the compensation of what they have earned. What is this? This is Allah using them as an example. Allah is using them as an example. And Allah is the mighty and the wise. SubhanAllah, if you just ponder over this. There is, is there any example of this in modern time? One example in modern time is that certain governments, 20 years ago, they had cut a few hands. Certain governments, if you look, you could Google it. Certain governments, they try to you know, establish a type of generic Sharia law. But they did it But my point is the case point My point is the case point I'm not talking about the validity I'm talking about the case point That when Allah Ta'ala says It's the preservation of wealth There were certain governments 20 years ago They tried to establish some generic sharia So what they do They cut a couple of hands of people Who they considered to be thieves 20 years later Then that government was overthrown The government disappeared 20 years later, the same government came back. No hands were cut. Not a single thief has the courage to touch anything. And not a single hand was cut. What's the reason? I'm talking about a case point. We're trying to make a point out of a specific case. We're not talking about the validity of a government. And we're not talking about that they've established, you know, the, uh, mashallah, you know, jannat on earth. We're talking about case point. Like if you were doing an experiment, Mentally, people are terrified. And that is the objective. The hivzul mal doesn't come with, okay, there you go, now you can go back. Or having, you know, a police force that said, oh, did somebody steal it? Yeah, actually, it was us. Okay, you can go back home. If you're gonna say anything, we're gonna kill you. And we're gonna kill your whole family. You have type of police, type of enforcement like that as well, that exists. As a perfect case point, you can see these generic government that have tried to establish it, but the result of it, even in a generic and broken and deficient manner, has done the job. We're not talking about, we're talking about case like a, if you were to do a laboratory experiment. That let's do this. Let's say just a bunch of kids were to do it on there. That any kid who's going to steal anybody's ball, we're all going to beat them up. I'm not even talking about a, 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 a government. Okay, let's just say a bunch of kids, right, on the on the high school yard. Is anybody who's going to take somebody's ball? This is our rule. We're going to beat them up. What do you think is going to happen? Nobody's going to touch nobody's ball. This is one of the objectives because somebody might ask you, why is this mentioned in the Quran? Right? And the reality of it is, 20 years from that time to this time, this time not a single hand was cut. What's happening? Because people think, when they say Sharia law and cutting of hands, they think like, okay, this whole, this whole uh, gathering, we're all standing in line. Okay, let's get our hands cut off. It's as if when Sharia law is coming, okay, let's get our hands cut off. Anybody uh, would like to volunteer? It doesn't work like that. That's what they think like cutting of hands is. Whereas all it is, it's supposed to be a deterrent. This is what, these are what the laws of Sharia is. It's a deterrent. You see? And then Hibzul Nasab. Stoning. Ah, oh, these are these, please don't talk about this Shaykh. Stoning, yes. The Prophet stoned in his time, and Abu Bakr stoned in his time, and Umar radiallahu stoned in his time. And they said that I am afraid that time will pass, and this deen will continue, and people will say that stoning is, doesn't have any place in Islam. It was actually mentioned by Sayyidina Umar anhu. But, anyways. The hadith is in Bukhari, and it is an ijma of the Sahaba. It is the consensus of the scholars that stoning is established in the Deen. However, the objective is the person who is a married man or woman, and they have committed an act of adultery. Right? It's such a painful and slow punishment, stoning, that the whole objective is just a brutal. Just the brutality of it. It's not even the thing in and of itself. It's the brutality of that whole scene that when a person, it comes in his mind that I'm going to cheat on my wife or I'm going to cheat on my husband. And that scene comes in their mind that they're getting stoned. That is a deterrent. And that is the objective of what this is. And why that that is? It's supposed to protect the nasab. Because imagine that a man is having... Committing adultery with a woman, that woman becomes pregnant. What is the condition of that child? That is a illegitimate illegitimate child. That is a child being born out of honor, out of dignity. My Shaykh Rahmatullah used to say that whatever laws Allah has revealed, Allah has revealed these laws out of ghairat for his creation. Allah has created these laws out of honor for us. Allah does not want us to have an honor. I mean, I I hate to use this example. Does anybody like to know that their origin was that you were the, you know, mom and dad had a good time in the back of the car, you know, and then this is how you came into the world? Do you see what I'm saying? Is this an honorable thing that a person should know or a person should be, uh, the, 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 the way that they came on this earth was not out of sanctified union of a man and a woman in a holy place, in a holy manner. Allah is giving honor to his creation. And what are we doing? We're actually dishonoring that child. And that is why they say if relations takes place in a place other than the private part, then it is not considered zina. Because it is the place of where the womb is the place where the child becomes born. So this is a long discussion. I'm not gonna get into the fiqhi issues, but why, for example, stoning has been established in Sharia is for the preservation of that nasab. That nasab is something of great honor. And Hivzul Ird. Many of the laws that have been revealed that a person can Haddul Qadhaf. We've heard of al Qaddaf. We know that in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet's wife, Aisha, was accused of adultery. We know that? You've heard of that? And many, many people said, yes, uh, you know, Aisha had a relationship with this. Na'udhu billah, na'udhu billah, this companion. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed, he said, bring four witnesses. You have to prove. It's not just a sharia law, just come and say somebody did something and then you get your hand cut and you get stoned to death and it doesn't work that way. There's a due process in our sharia as well. So this allegations was made and accusations was made against the most pure of human beings. Bring your proof. They weren't able to bring a proof. Therefore, for the protection of the honor, a hundred lashes. jalda. Allah Ta'ala says, if they cannot bring those four witnesses after making this allegation and accusation, then you are the one that is making قَذَف. You are making accusation of a pious human being. And what have you done? You've destroyed the life of a person. When you have defamed the person, you've destroyed the life of a person. Therefore, you are worthy of a hundred lashes for doing what? For accusing and actually destroying the life. If anybody has studied Waqiyatul Ifq, it's a long hadith in Bukhari, you will see that the Prophet did not go through any stress as much as he went through emotional stress in Waqiyatul Ifq you know in sacrifice, I have compiled a book, Sacrifice. One chapter is the emotional hardships the Prophet went through. Read that Waqiyatul Ifq. How much the Prophet went through for his wife being accused. Imagine the wife of the Prophet. That's where the verse was revealed. at tayyibina tayyibuna tayyibat wal khabithina wal-khabithuna khabithat Allah Ta'ala says, O oh, munafiqeen O oh, munafiqeen who are accusing the wife of the Prophet listen to this the evil women are for the evil men and it's good for the Shia to hear this as well because the Shia they're always accusing the wives of the Prophet so all oh, biwukuf Shias listen to this if the wife of the Prophet is evil why did God give an evil woman it must be an evil man then what is your what is your response to that what is the response of the Shia to this the accused always talking bad about Aisha, talking bad about Hafsa. So you talking bad about the wife is actually talking bad about the husband. That's what it actually is because Allah says in the Quran, الطيبات Tayyibin. The pure women for the pure men. That is how Allah makes it. The evil women for the evil men. So if you're saying Aisha is an evil woman, then you're saying the Prophet is an evil man. Allah selected her. The wives of the Prophet wasn't selected by the Prophet himself. Allah selected them. So basically, you're saying that Allah selected an evil wife for the Prophet. So what does that make the Prophet? You understand how important this is? This is protecting the honor. Protecting the honor is such an important thing that the law of Qazaf has been. And I'm saying, why have these various laws of Sharia been uh, been revealed? Why have these laws been sanctioned? For the preservation of these very, very important things, which society rests on these points. You take these things away and you have societies that are literally falling apart, chaos. It looks like it's being held together, but go internally and you'll see there is no peace, there is no comfort, there is no integrity, there is no dignity, there's, there's pain, there's suffering, there's depression, there's, that's not life. Well outside it looks very like clean, right? But if you go inside, there's no honor, there's no dignity, there's no peace, there's no happiness. And then lastly, Hivzuddin, and this is where we're coming to now. This is where so that was the introduction for this hadith. Now let's read the hadith. The Prophet said that La Yahillu Muslimin Allah illallah wa anni illa bi ihda the blood of a Muslim is not permissible except in three instances. What did we say? The blood of a Muslim is the protection of life, right? So, the life must be protected. But there are three situations that the life can be now taken. By who? Not by me and you. By the government. By the hakim. By the ruler. By the Supreme Court justice. Not by me and you. This is by the ruler of the land. By a Muslim ruler of the land. Number one, a zani. Who is that? The married person who commits adultery. We already explained that, right? This is, number, this one. The married person who commits adultery. Their life can be taken. Did we explain why? Is because the the seriousness of bringing an illegitimate child into this world and the mixing up of human lineages. I was, I mean, it's, I'm sorry to say this, but it has so much to do with what we're talking about that it's crazy. Hifz nasab do you know how crazy this society has become? People go to sperm bank. I was reading an article about somebody who married somebody who they didn't know that was their sister from a sperm bank, from a sperm donor. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Do you understand the importance of this? How there's madness in the society. A person goes donating his right, donating his his, uh, his uh, sperm, and then what? Somebody else goes and injects themselves in it, which is zina. This is zina. And that somebody's born from that, and then another person in Wyoming, and another person in Canada, and another person in Texas, and another person, and all the seed is being spread. Haram. And who knows who meets who? And this had actually happened that two people were actually they married and they had children. And then later on, they found out that they were brother and sister from a person who had donated. Yani, that I'm talking about the chaos. If you don't believe in anything, I mean, why would, I'm, I'm saying, okay, when you don't believe in religion and you don't believe in God, what's the big deal anyways? Right? So I me and you are brother and sister, so what? But my point here is, why did this article make headlines? Hassan, listen to the, listen to the point I'm going to make from this. It doesn't matter when you don't believe in God, right? Who cares? So, okay, it was a sperm from a sperm bank, and it was something that, okay, it's my brother, so what, 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 what difference does it make? If you don't believe in anything, it doesn't make a difference. But my point is, the only reason it made headlines is because fitratan, in the fitra. In the natural disposition of human beings, people are displeased. People consider this to be below their dignity. It khilaf khilaaf-e-fitrat. It is not according to the dignity of human beings that this should be happening. Human beings love to be honored that I know that this was my mother and father. They were married in the church. I mean, this was part of this culture. They honored this. This was honorable to them. There was a woman who came to the masjid she says, oh, wow, this is so beautiful. I had gotten married in this church 40 years ago. Old lady, she came. What a beautiful thing it was that even in this society, people used to marry in a place of worship. Do you know how special that is? Do you know how good that is? This used to be honored in this country as well. People who believed in the best way, Ahl al-Kitab. This is the beauty of Ahlul Kitab. All Ahlul Kitab have this. What's the Ten Commandments? This is Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Thou shalt not take any gods besides one God. Isn't it? This is what Ten Commandments revealed to Musa a.s. in the Torah. My point is, is that, right, this is the point, what, what the Prophet SAW is saying, that you will not take the life of a Muslim except by these three. And one of them is, right, the zani. The zani. Because of what chaos is going to bring, because of that chaos, of what it destroys the society, Allah wanted to bring such a punishment that it's so brutal that just the scene of it will make a person deter. If somebody were to ask you anything about these laws, just remember one word. It's a deterrent. It doesn't happen every day. They say in the Ottoman Empire, there was not one stoning that took place. 800 years, Ottoman Empire. Why? Number one, it has to be proven with four witnesses that they see that the string going into the eye of the needle. Four witnesses has to see this, the, str- the string going into the eye of the needle. So that's point number one. Taking this into consideration, we understand that this is not something that even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants it to, that everybody should be getting this punishment. It's a deterrent. Do you understand this? It's a deterrent. And there's rules regarding even stealing, that it has to be something of value. If somebody, for example, steals the, you know, a pen or somebody steals food, you don't get your hand cut it has to be something of value and then you look at the condition of a person if he's poor if he's hungry what's the condition of society and there's all of these things that come along with it khair wa nafsu bin nafs the second thing is the point is taking a life for a life if somebody took the life of somebody he's a murderer he has forfeited his right he has not honored life his life must be taken and what did allah say about that wa fil qisas hayatun ya ul albab and in this Qisas, there is life. O oh, people of intelligence, if you only ponder, that that one life that is taken, 100,000 people will take heed from this deterrent. And then lastly, The one who abandons his deen, the one who becomes murtad and leaves the community of the believers. Understand? And what this is now, this is actually for the preservation of deen. This is one of the reasons why I wanted you to understand all of these things. When a person becomes murtad, we have to understand that irtidad, what, when we understand it from the perspective, leaving Islam, you were a Muslim, and then you leave Islam openly, the hukum of that under an Islamic hukuma and a government is the qatl, is death, is the death penalty. And we have to understand this, that in pre-modern times, a person living in an Islamic hukuma, a person living under Islamic rule, they're also a citizen of that place. So, what you do is when you, for example, right now, a lot of people don't, you know, Edward Snowden and some of these other whistleblowers, right, or these people, right now, America wants them. They are wanted for what they call treason. And there's for the treason in the, you know, Constitution of the United States. Because a lot of people ask, how could you say that you, you kill somebody who leaves their religion? Well, there's the, the, the rule of treason, even in the Constitution. That if somebody, for example, commits an act of treason against their country, then death penalty, or life imprisonment, and so on and so forth. This is very much the like, likes of that. There were people in the time of the Prophet, sallam, for example, who left, they, they left religion. The Prophet sallam, didn't do anything to them. So what's the point here, what's being mentioned? It's specifically those people who create a, how do you say, uh, a chaos. They create kind of like a rebellion. They create confusion. And we see this in many of the apostates and murtads today, that you see one of them going about and he starts spewing all this other kufr. And then another person who just like watches a video, he'd be like, oh yeah, he's true. And you have these people that are ex-Muslims. They're ripping the Qur'ans and they're throwing them inside of the garbage what has empowered them what has empowered them to do stuff like that right the fact that they can get away with what they're saying and now what happened that preservation of deen or the pres- i mean why did why was the law of treason even introduced it's the preservation of government it's the preservation of that system you have everybody coming and rebelling everybody coming and saying whatever they want to say now in this society for example there's no law of apostasy. Now people say about Christ whatever they want to say. People say about, you know, the religion whatever they want to say. And again, this law is also under an Islamic rule, under Islamic government, under Islamic ruler. It's not for Zayd, Ahmed and Bakr to go and implement this law. That's why those people who go and then they're shooting people up because somebody drew a cartoon of the Prophet or they're shooting people up because somebody, you know, said something about the religion. This is completely unacceptable. It's not somebody's right to do that any one of these laws have to be established by a legitimate Muslim ruler under a legitimate Islamic government. You understand? Nobody else has the haqq to do this. But when, now that when we're reading this, I wanted to clarify, this is not applicable except under, like I said, a legitimate Muslim government and the law has to be passed by a legitimate Muslim ruler. And the reason behind that is these these things that I have mentioned here for the preservation of life, for the preservation of deen. You have people just going around and saying whatever they want to say. What has religion become in the West? But they know that you can't say nothing about the Prophet. This much they know: you can't say nothing about Islam. There was one movie, one movie maker. He's like, oh, you know, you're not gonna, you know, you put all these religious. Things in there, you didn't put a mosque Or you put all this religious thing You didn't put Muhammad He said, man, I, I don't want to mess with that stuff I don't want to mess with them They're going to put a fatwa on me And then next thing you know, like I'm found dead In like, the back of somebody's truck or something the, 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 the director, he's saying this What put that fear in his heart That I can't play with people's religion We have ghayrat we have in our religion You can't say whatever you want to say about the prophets You can't say whatever you want to say about religion It's not a, something, it's not a toy for you to play with And this is serious. This is the difference between Islam and Christianity. We don't mess around regarding these matters. It's not a joke. The Prophet is not a joke. Stop your jokes. Quran is not a joke. Stop your jokes. But, like I said, these are all matters that go back to the Islamic ruler. It's not a person's personal thing that I take it into my own power. But with that being said, may Allah give us the understanding of the, what do you call it, the hikmah. And the beauty of the Sharia. That if we really knew the depths of this, how deep it is, and we have to understand this from our perspective because there's a lot of media trying to put in the minds of Muslims, and the worst Muslims are those Muslims that are self-haters. May Allah protect us. The worst Muslim of all is the Muslim who is a self-hater. Wallahi, there is nothing, my dear brothers and sisters, that is greater than actual Good and proper sharia Being implemented in the world somewhere But the reality of it is Muslims are so used to The secular kufr system That we become Like number one proponents Of opposing that And going against that And criticizing that In every single way that we can And this is a nifaq in the heart I seek refuge in Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala in that There's so much politics That's surrounded around it That you can't talk about it But deep down in your heart you have to understand this has to be done before the end of this world. This is gonna be happening. This has to be established. How is that gonna happen? In a way that the West likes it? How is that gonna happen? In a way that Tom, Dick, and Harry is gonna be very congratulatory? No, they're not. So my point is this is a very sensitive matter because these matters are intertwined with politics. It's very difficult. But deep down in our hearts, right, there is nothing that should, for an Imam, for a Da'i. All we do is give Da'wah. Right? An imam and a Da'i, all he does is give Da'wah. What do you think is the epitome of all Da'wah? What do you think? As a Muslim, what do you think is the epitome, the highest level of Da'wah? Is that Islamic establishment, Islamic Hukuma should be established, where the Shara of Allah is established. This is the highest epitome, this is the pinnacle. After the burial of the Prophet Muhammad, the Prophet is still inside the grave, he just freshly buried. And some of the some say that the Prophet was not buried yet, and the Sahaba are already arguing about who is going to be the one after the Prophet. Why? Because the establishment of the law is one of the objectives of Sharia: establishing rule, establishing law. Look at what, what, what are all the harms after the Khilafat Uthmaniyah has fallen apart. The whole world has fallen apart. When the Khilafat Uthmaniyah fell, the whole world fell apart. What is there now for us? SubhanAllah, it was a place where Indians could go, Afghanis could go, Albanians could go, Africans could go everywhere. You didn't need this. Is the, everybody had a, a passport that was our Muslim land. But long story short, my point is, is the whole objective of this is not about politics and it's not about government it's for, as a muslim we have to understand the sharia and the objectives of sharia right politics this is not what this discussion is about this hadith has to do with killing of the three people and Who is that for? It is not for any human being to do. It is not for Tom, Dick, and Harry, Amr Zaid, and Bakr. It is for the legitimate ruler of a Muslim government. What is a Muslim government? That which establishes divine laws of the Sharia. What is the objective of divine law of Sharia? These are the objectives. That was the purpose of this, like I said. And why I say it's a little bit difficult to explain these things because sometimes it becomes intertwined with certain politics. But like I said, the politics is not the objective. I hope that's clear. May Allah give us the understanding.